0: Reading of God's word, please stand, Jonah 4, 4 through 11, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat in it, under it, in the shade, till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. I am Vincent Hoppy. I'm the pastor here. I am a uh... If you have questions of like, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we structure things? Why do we do call and response? I'm available to answer some of those questions after the service. Also, if you have come to Grace and Peace more than five times, it is your duty and responsibility to find someone new and become homies for life with that person. Uh, Do that after the service, not right now. But what is Grace and Peace about? Grace and Peace is a church that desires to bring the healing power of the gospel into every broken place. Especially our hearts, the hearts of our friends and family. And how do we do this? We execute this vision by connecting with God. It means that worship here on Sunday is vitally important. We also care for one another by knowing each other's stories, our hurts, our traumas, our difficulties. We do this especially in things like city groups. And then we cultivate in the city. We grow as people following after God so that we may go into a city, a city that we believe God loves, so that we may care for it. We may see it grow. We may see it change. We may see it reflect the values that God has. And after a year of, you know, uh, almost a year of the pandemic, maybe the healing of the gospel for those broken places, the places that politics broke, the places where tragedy struck, is exactly where grace and peace needs to be. And so we continue in our series in Jonah. Jonah. And Jonah, starting here in uh, chapter four, verse five, and in this area begins to this second time that God comes and basically pleads and shows Jonah his waywardness, and so he's trying to recalibrate the heart of Jonah. Shortly after the sinking of the Titanic in 1914, what well, there was a Congress met in order to find out about another. Uh, uh, a na- uh, nautical tragedy. On a foggy day in January, off the coast of Virginia, the steamship Monroe was rammed by a uh, uh, by by the Nantucket, a merchant vessel. Forty-one sailors died that day, many drowning. They lost their lives. Captain Osmond Barry of the Nantucket, he was arraigned, he was charged with negligence, and he had to appear before Congress, and they grilled him, making sure that he had done everything within his power to save life and to not have caused this error. But it was on the cross-examination of the other captain, Captain Edward Johnson, captain of the Monroe, that it was discovered he had been neglecting the tuning and recalibrating of the ship's compass. He'd gone a year without recalibrating it, and they discovered that it was more than two degrees off, and they'd accounted for the tragic error of that day. At the end of the trial, the two captains clasped hands and sobbed on each other's shoulders, to which one person wrote, The sobs of these two burly seamen Are a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. The consequences of how a misdirected love, how our misdirected hearts will shipwreck our lives. So, here in the story of Jonah, we have another confrontation with God, we have a second intervention to cause Jonah to lead, to, to lead him to repentance, to challenge what he loves, to challenge our hearts as well. And Jonah's confronted for his heart's devotion to a lesser love, his misdirected love, which leads to contempt for the Ninevites and his anger toward God. It is displayed in the difference, and so it displays the story, the difference between our love and God's love. Notice at the beginning in chapter 1, it says it made or displeased Jonah exceedingly, or he was exceedingly angry, or he was filled with evil, it says. But in the juxtaposition, what was it that made him exceedingly glad? A gourd grew up overnight and gave him shade during the day. To which you're supposed to say, what a fool. What are you doing? But it's also to reveal to us that we too, are like Jonah. We have misdirected hearts, things that should make us exceedingly sad or upset are not the things that make God exceedingly sad or upset. The things that make us exceedingly glad and happy are not the things that makes God exceedingly glad or happy, or even this, the things that made Jonah exceedingly glad were not the things that he was designed to be made exceedingly glad in. And so what this story does is a confrontation. God lovingly confronting and intervening in Jonah's life and in our lives right now to tell us that we have loves and hearts that are misdirected. God, by his providence, is recalibrating the heart of Jonah. God, by his providence, exposes the misdirected love of Jonah and reveals his love. It's a comparison of our love and God's love. Let's look at our love. The book of Jonah confronts us with the reality of fallen human loves. It displays for the audience that our hearts are are attached to the wrong things and we are to repent. We see that our love, though, is demonstrated by what we protect and what we pity and what we also enjoy. And so we have to have our love demonstrated for us. Then we have to see what our love imitates, what are we imitating. And then also we see that our love is misdirected. So our love is demonstrated by what we protect or what we pity. Do you see how angry Jonah got at the plant? He says that he is angry enough to die because God appointed a worm to eat it and it shriveled up and that he was being scorched by the heat. He was upset by his discomfort. His loss of discomfort is what displeases him. It shows what he loves. Augustine, old St Augustine, and he talks about that love gives us this directional weight. It carries us where we want to go. kind of like gravity pulls you in only well, let me put it this way. Have you ever seen a little child with a giant head? Trust me, you've all seen them, right? And if you were to push their head in a particular direction, what happens to the child? Their entire body falls over. You guys joke, but this is actually true. Kids have giant heads. That's actually why they are born early. Their brains are giant. And it's there's, there's some actual evidence on that. Oh, um, anyway. <laughs> and so their loves... Kind of their, their directional weight kind of moves their entire body, their entire person. And so this directional weight is exposed for Jonah. And God in his providence, what is he doing? He's saying, like, where are you going? What are you doing, Jonah? And doing this to Jonah and sending the plant, sending the worm, sending the wind, God is lovingly showing Jonah that he's loving all the wrong things. He's looking for love also in all the wrong places. All persons are lovers. We're made to love. As one person put it, we are sociopaths for love. God and his being, the three persons eternally existent in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the same substance, equal in power and glory, exists in mutual self-giving life and love. And we are made in his image, male and female. In his image we are made. And we are designed to be those who love. And we show that love by giving it to other people. By sacrificing to others. When God reveals himself, Jonah confesses. He confesses that God is the God of steadfast love. He says that in chapter uh, 3 and in chapter 4. We are made to be lovers after his image, to, be, to reflect his love into the world. And Augustine also says our hearts are restless until we find our hearts rest in him. And so in this process, God is showing Jonah that what he loves is causing him to shipwreck his life. And for many of us, it's not enough to be told that we're sinners, right? And that we're sinning. It's, that's not enough. We have to be shown it, don't we? We have to be shown it. We have to see the consequences of our actions, where it's going to lead. We're all like Scrooge, and what we need are three ghosts to visit us in the middle of the night to show us exactly where our sin is going to lead us. God in His providence is giving opportunity to address what is misdirected in Jonah's heart. And he's giving us an opportunity now, through the story of Jonah, to see that our loves are misdirected and will shipwreck our lives. And so we need to think about it. Think about the situations whenever you get angry. When we get angry, that's just fear on the offensive. That is fear lashing out. Whenever we're worried, it's just anxiety about not having control. Whenever we grieve, yes, WandaVision fans, it is love persevering. (laughs) Many extreme emotions demonstrate that we love something that drives us into these actions. These actions of anger, worry, grieving. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we should not be angry about things, that we should not be worried or to grieve. But rather, are we, that we are to do these things without being in the, the position of Jonah, who at the loss of his comfort does what? I would rather die. That's a little extreme, but it is to show what was messed up in his heart. He was saying that his life was found in the gourd. That it was the object of his love. You see, the object of love to sin-stricken humans is whatever we would die for. And in what we reflect, and in, in, in that, we reflect God in a lot of ways. But the love, loving wrong things, it will kill you. God's love, on the other hand, his love for you, he will die for you and give you his life. And then that becomes the stabilizing weight. When that becomes the center of your heart, that will pull you in different directions. And where does it pull you to? that pulls you toward love of other, Not contempt on the side of a hill waiting for God to nuke them. <laughs> and so we are shown in the times, what are we shown in the times that we get angry? When we're worried, when we're grieved, it shows us that we have a misdirected love in our heart often. In the end of the day, the default mode of our heart is not to love God and neighbor, but to love self at the expense of neighbor. Christian and non-Christian alike waffle between the two, each demonstrating the heart of God made in his image and each demonstrating the heart of a sinner at the same time. But only the truly redeemed heart will grow into Christ's likeness, not to protect itself because Christ is what the heart most truly loves and what you most truly need. And whatever you love, you will be like. And so the next thing you need to know is that our love imitates. Our love imitates. Notice what he was doing. Jonah's on the side of a hill waiting for the Ninevites to be nuked by God. What was he imitating? He was imitating a heart of nationalism that believes that he needed to preserve his nation, that they were superior, instead of seeing that God has set his love on them for the sake that they would go and love other people. And so he presumed upon God's love. What does this mean? Our love imitates, Vince. Come on, tell me a little more, preacher man. What means this? It means children imitate their parents in a lot of ways. Let me go further. If you were to uh, investigate what it looks like in the Hoppy household, you will see a bunch of kids that look a lot like our parents, right? They look like me, but also they do the things like me. One day, we, they couldn't go to worship service. So I came home, and what did I find? I found a pulpit... I found some bread and juice. And what were my kids doing? My kids were conducting a worship service in my basement. Why? Because they were imitating what they love. See, love imitates what we admire. That's what it does. But our love as fallen humans is misdirected. You see, we're a lot like the American philosopher Lizzo. You know, I'm crying because I love you. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a great song. And so what makes you cry? What's underneath that? There's that misdirected love. You know, anything that causes the extreme emotion, Lizzo crying. Lizzo's got millions of dollars. Who cares about unrequited love? I mean, come on. It proves that her heart. And at the end, what we are in the middle, uh, in the center of all of us, what is our weight? It is whatever we worship. Worship and love cannot be dissected from each other. Our love as fallen humans is misdirected. You see, Jonah had this love for comfort, but God's love is directed for the other. Misdirected love will make us self protective. Suspicious of other people. Love directed toward God will cause us to be suspicious of our own sin and protective of others. God demonstrates to Jonah his misdirected love, which manifests itself in pride and prejudice against people. Misdirected love will cause us to live out of accord with a grain of reality. You see, we're supposed to read this story and go, Jonah, what are you thinking? And at the same time realize, I think that too. It causes us to lack conformity or to transgress the law of God. This is what we know as sin, as good Presbyterians. So love God. Put him at the center of your life and enjoyment and you will inevitably love your neighbor. Love anything else in all of creation as ultimate and you'll be destroyed and have contempt for your neighbor. Jonah displays hatred toward people where the, fundamental, where the fundamental thing and the most human thing about being human is not to hate others, but to give your life for others. And in so doing, you reflect the love of God, which is other-centered. Jesus tells his disciples that the world will know you by your love for one another. And so he gives them the command love one another. It is this accessibility to one another, the sacrifice to one another, the mercy to one another, the understanding to one another. It is love that is open to the other that demonstrates that you demonstrates to you the validity of God's love that it is stabilizing and strong. It is a witness that God is working amongst the people. And love will always be exclusive of, of something. In our love, it tends to be exclusive of people who are not like us. People who don't meet up, live up to our standards. Jonah wanted the Ninevites nuked because they believed their existence was a threat to, their, to the comfort of Israel. And that's what fallen love is like. And we have all sorts of misdirected, misprioritized love that will exclude others. Romantic love. You know, prioritize this and you'll always be checking your dating profile, ignoring other people who are right beside you. Every rejection cuts to the heart and every swipe right is a validation of your performance as a human being. And anyone who hinders your ability to find this romantic love is held in suspect. Think about race. Prioritize and pride yourself in the color of your skin. Then you will demonize others and be prejudiced toward other races. While all, all the while needing to defend your standing and your values in order to stay right amongst your people. Prioritize your nation. You'll have nationalism and you'll excuse the excesses and justify their failures. Prioritize achievement. You'll have meritocracy and you'll always look down your nose at everyone else as being lazy because they haven't achieved as much as you. Prioritize any self-righteous movement including your knowledge in defense of a theory, whether it be critical theory, postmodernism, feminism, conservatism. You know, whatever you want, you will always be looking down your nose at other people. And in the end, it is God denying, self-defining love for self. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Many of these things need to be, we need to listen to people. We need to affirm uh, where they're coming from. But don't love it. Don't prioritize it as number one. The danger in prioritizing any of these things is that the heart will control the reasoning. And so, what do we do? How do we recalibrate the heart? We need to come to places like worship. Everybody worships. It just matters. It just depends on what we worship. And so, when we come together on Sundays to recalibrate the heart so that the heart, the affections, We'll be tuned to where it belongs. So we sing songs. We hear God's word to confront us. We are cleansed by his loving word that releases us of guilt and shame. And we're sent out of this place to love others. What else do we do? We, we get into discipleship. Discipleship retunes our hearts through new habits of love. Discipleship teaches us how to be followers of Jesus, which is God's love made huggable, God's love gone public. And we do this and we care for one another in city groups or cohorts and in Bible studies so that we would know in our heads and be gripped in the heart so that we would work out in our hands the love of God. And so that we would turn from lesser loves that will destroy you. They will kill you. They will cause you to perform. Until you can perform no more for them. Taking every ounce of your energy. Whereas worship, the worship of the true God, invites you freely, unconditionally. Without any ounce of performance on yourself. Knowing that you're filled with sin and shame. And you're welcomed into the arms of Jesus Christ. There at worship, you retune your heart to sing the song of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ. We are to see that everyday providences then are an opportunity for us to exercise the love of God in the gym of God's creation. It means that we have opportunities every day to leverage our strength, creativity, time, and resources for love. Love of other. The Christian life is about love. It's about worship. Therefore, it is daily lived by choosing those moments of providential testing to choose God's love over lesser loves. C.S. Lewis says it well. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. The Christian life is a life and an invitation into deeper and deeper joy and love. More than any hobby or created person can possibly give you. So, when we see God's love, when we sing about it in worship, when we hear about it in God's word, we ought to be encouraged to put to death lesser loves that can't fulfill us and that will ultimately just do nothing for us. And what we're to do is to stoke into flame in song and in sacrament. The love of God that will warm our hearts and others. And this is now juxtaposed against God's love. You see, on the one hand, Jonah was upset and exceedingly exceedingly angry at the dying of the gourd. And then God confronts him and asks, why do you pity or do you do right to pity the plant? He didn't labor. He didn't do anything for it. And then he asked the converse question. Do I do right? Aren't I right to pity people? Made in his image. Created to be like him. And so there's this confrontation. And what do we see? We see that God's love now is protective or jealous. God has chosen a people in whom Jonah is kind of the archetype, the spokesperson for the people here. He has chosen to reflect God's love and to represent his ways into the world. But they're failing. Jonah is a demonstration of protective, of of, of self-protection. But God, what does he do? He confronts them. Because he knows that the misdirected loves of Jonah's heart is going to burn him. It's going to consume him. It's going to destroy him. God's love is jealous for his people. And trust me, you want a jealous God. In the same way that you have jealous parents. When a parent is seeing a child struggling with drugs, do they say, oh, you know, they chose that? That's what they love. No, a good parent is a jealous parent and will fight for their kids. A good lover is one who sees when someone is making a pass at the one that they love. What do we do? We get angry. We get jealous. Because we know that that person's heart is for me. And so, when God sees something captivating and taking away Jonah's heart, in your heart, in my heart, God justly gets jealous. And he comes after him. And so, we see that God's love is also purifying. It says in Hebrews 12 that our God is a consuming fire. Oftentimes, whenever God shows up, there's fire, there's light. It purifies. And so God's love in the confrontation of Jonah is to show him that these things are corrupting you and will destroy you. And we need to get rid of them. You can't live this way anymore with a divided heart, he's telling him; He's showing them a different way. He causes us to want to be different. You see, the whole of sanctification in the Christian's life is God's work so that we become more like Jesus. And how do we do that? By dying to sin and living to righteousness. We need to die. We need to hate. We need to put to death. We need to destroy everything that divides our heart, that comes and becomes a competitor against God's love and our love for God. So God's love is purifying, and He wants that for us. His love is also self-giving. God's love gives the self for the delight and joy of the other. Notice that God pities and spares the people. Should I not pity that great city? To forgive, to relent, God shows us that love gives for the for what it loves. the Ninevites deserve? Did the Ninevites deserve to be spared? Did they deserve to be spared? No. No, they didn't deserve to be spared, but God absorbs his own justice because he loves them. He pities them. God absorbs the debt of the beloved into himself. Love absorbs the debt of the beloved into oneself so that what is owed is paid for by the one who loves. Love self-gives. Let me put it this way. Uh, think about the Nazareth song from, like, I think it was the '70s or something. Like that love hurts, love scars, love wounds, and mars any heart not tough or strong enough to take a lot of pain. Ooh, love hurts, and no one knows that more than God. Love hurts because He bears love in His hands and in His side. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love hurts because it is self-giving at great cost to oneself. And that love from God goes to sinners for the sake of the other. God's love reminds me a lot of this story by a New York City cop. He spent 20 years as a detective. His name is Steve Osborne. At one time he was a sergeant in the, in the, uh, in the department. And a part of his job was in the fugitive division. And so guys who came in and that they needed to track down did really bad stuff. And so every morning at 4.30 a.m., they would get there with his coffee. And because it was better to wake up these guys while they're in the middle of the sleep because they are not prepared for any of this, that's why they met at 4.30 in the morning so that they could pick up a guy at 5 o'clock, okay, because he's still in the middle of sleep. There would be stacks of warrants on his desk when he got there in priority, ordered from the top, the top priority to the bottom. And on the top of the stack is always a mugshot. And on the top of his stack one morning was it for a guy named Hector. Hector had been in and out of the system. And then on this mugshot, he sees and looks at Hector with his black hair, beady little black eyes, and his pockmarked cheeks and a scar on his face. He knew Hector was going to be a problem. And so they go out there, you know, uh, what were they trying to get Hector for Hector? You know, gotten into an argument with a guy, shot him. The guy recovered, so not murder, but attempted murder, okay? He gets out on bail, to, and he was supposed to return 30 days later. He fails to return. Big surprise. So now he's Steve's problem. And so he looks at this mugshot, he examines it, he goes to the place. He goes to the building, he walks up the stairs. Of course, it's a place he's been there before. There's gunshot, gunshots in the wall, there's pee in the corner, there's graffiti everywhere. And of course, they have to go up to the fourth floor, right? And so, of course, he stationed a guy at the bottom in order to make sure that he doesn't jump out. Why? Because when you're desperate, people jump out of windows, Right? And so that's what happens. And so you just got to jump out. So, because, you know, as soon as they jump out, someone's going to blame that a cop pushed them or something. So, right before knocking, you know, Steve gets there and he examines that mugshot. And he sees there a face only a mother could love beady black eyes, black hair. Real sharp, distinct look on his face. He knocks on the door, and there you can hear everything clack, 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 clack. You know, 20 locks because you need it in this area. And here's this little, tiny Hispanic lady in her 50s with her robe over her, a pink, fluffy robe and pink, fluffy slippers. And he's like, Hey, is uh, Hector here? And he pushes his way in. And she's like, "We got to see Hector. We have a warrant for Hector." And mom, she's like, "Hector's not here. Hector's dead." And she says, and he says, "Are you sure? Yeah, come on. You know people lie to him, and you know like he's imagining Hector behind the door with a knife or something like that because that's the way things go." And so Steve says, "Come, like, come on, lady. Are you lying to me? Because if you're lying to me, we're gonna have some trouble." And she's like, no, Hector's dead. He died last week. And then the mom and the sister comes out, and they lock arms. And the sister comes out, and she says, he's dead. And hands him a card of a detective who was looking at the case. And sure enough, after they call, they find out that Hector had been killed down the street. It all checks out. And so Steve looks at the mugshot one more time. He said, there's no mistake. This is, this is Hector, and he's dead, right? And the tears starting to fill up in her eyes with a photo of a face only a mother could love. She asked Steve, could I have the photo? You see, Hector had gone gotten, gotten into the system. had got lost in the streets. And it was true. It was a face only a mother could love. But she loved him. And she says, can I have it? And he's like, "Lady, we don't give these things out." I mean, come on, this isn't a baseball card, you know? And so he says, "You know, oh, okay, if this is the only photo you have, because it was, then you could have it." And so she takes the photo, presses it into her chest, crying and sobbing because she had lost her son walks over to the, table, to, to, the, uh, to the bookcase filled with photos of family members and gradu- graduation regalia and sports uniforms, military uniforms. And she takes the mugshot of Steve, a face only a mother could love, of, of Hector, a face only a mother could love, puts it on the shelf. You see, God's love is a lot like that for you and me. For a lot of us, we, we know that the things we've done and the things we suffer with are things that only a mother can love. But in truth and actuality, our lives are lives only that God can love. And it transforms each and, each and every one of us into people that love others. You see, love like that will see you through all the junk that keeps that keep, keep you down, that mess you up. This is love purified, love self-giving, love that's not afraid to place your mugshot up on the family photos because God's love is exclusive. It is jealous. God's love will not give up on you, a lot like it wasn't giving up on Jonah. Jonah wanted comfort. God wanted people. In the end, God's love is for you, and he will exchange his life for you so that you may truly live and love others. Jonah wanted to die outside of the city because of the plant manifesting his misdirected love. Jesus dies for you outside of the city displaying God's love. And so today I ask you will you trade and put down lesser loves to receive God's love as displayed in the broken body poured out blood of Jesus. God demonstrated his love in Jesus by dying for sinners. He exchanged his life for what he loves, which is you. Will you exchange lesser loves for true love? Amen. Almighty and gracious God, meet us now. And your supper. So that we may reflect your love and goodness into the world. Help us to get your love in the heart by your sacrament. Meet us now. Amen.